Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, the Commonwealth Games have been given the go-ahead by Hamilton City Council. How much closer does this get us to the goal of hosting those 100th Games? A drop in steel prices has hurt the bottom line in Stelco. The company says the loss comes after challenging market conditions. And Balfour House has been approved for lease by the think tank Cardis. But not everybody in the city is pleased by that decision. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The uh, city council getting the finally the lowdown on what was going on with the Hamilton 100 bid. That, of course, is the uh, uh, effort by a group of uh, local business people uh, who have come together to try to uh, make sure that Hamilton is the host for the 2030 Commonwealth Games, which is the 100th anniversary, of course, of the Games. Uh, P.J. McCandy is one of those, the CEO of Carmen's Group and, of course, a member of the Hamilton 100 Group. Uh, he was at City Hall yesterday, and he's with us right now on the Bill Kelly Show on CHML. P.J., good morning. How are you doing today? Doing great, Bill. Thank you. Uh, you're, uh, give me your read on what you saw, what you heard yesterday. Obviously, this this passed. It was endorsed by council, not unanimously, but it was passed. Uh, but what kind of reaction did you get from the councillors as you made your presentation and really got down to some of the gr- gritty details about what has to be done here? I think staff were really appreciative of all the work that our Hamilton 100 team has done, and and they got a true sense of the scope of work that we've done on a volunteer basis over the course of the past few months and the progress that we've made in advancing some of the issues that they had and the comments that they had around it. So yesterday, uh, Lou Forporti from Gowling, WLG, and myself presented before council the overall vision, uh, but it was focused on a lot of the brass tacks items. We looked and dove in on the financial modeling on the venue plan in greater detail and spoke about how this bid is going to be much different than previous bids. We've got a very unique innovation strategy around the United Nations 17 Sustainable Development Goals that Lou spoke to briefly. Uh, Actually, not briefly, he spoke to it for a while and it was amazing. Uh, And and so council was very uh, positively responsive to, to the vision to the idea of how we're trying to make it different. And we were delighted that they uh, voted in support of allowing us to to move forward. There's no risk on the city's part at this point uh, for providing the endorsement letter that is part of the phase two bid. So it's, it's you know, the city is still in a very good position right now. Maybe you could expand on, on what Lou was talking about yesterday, about uh, this uh, you know, this marriage of, of the concept with the United Nations vision and the goals that they have set out. This is not simply a, a, a bid to simply say, hey, let's build an arena and, and uh, maybe a stadium or something else, and you know, we'll have a great time for two weeks, and then that'll be it. This, you, you're talking about something much more long-lasting here. A hundred percent, and we recognize, and, and the Commonwealth Games Federation recognizes that uh, there's much more to sport than than can be achieved uh, through these games initiatives, and and Lou presented a very unique uh, concept uh, and, and a twist on legacy, uh, and and this is where we genuinely want to use the games as a catalyst to solve some of the city's uh, big problems and issues, and to put a dent in some of these issues, and to focus on the these United Nations goals. Uh, and, and a lot of the goals uh, that were stated are very relevant to, to Hamilton. It's about poverty. It's about jobs. Uh, it's about, uh, you know, clean water and access to health care. So, so we want to focus on that and have the games be a mechanism uh, and a reason to, to solve those problems. And at the same time, bring the amazing research that is being done at McMaster, at McMaster Innovation Park, at Mohawk. Bring those innovations and technologies to the world. 
uh, through this games initiatives focused around the sustainable development goals. So, so we're looking at a really big opportunity for Hamilton, and we're delighted that we've gotten the support of other municipalities around this initiative. So we've gotten letters of support from the City of Toronto, uh, the city of Kitchener, city of Waterloo, the Niagara Peninsula, St. Catharines. So it's, it's, a, it's really exciting to see how so many other communities are rallying around Hamilton's bid. This is a Hamilton-led bid. You know, 85% of the sport venues would be in Hamilton, um, but yet we're getting excitement from the rest of southern Ontario around this initiative. Well, and that's interesting, and I, I know that's one of the questions I had when you and Lou were here in the studio a couple of weeks ago uh, about uh, partnerships with this, and I don't just mean business partnerships, but who else? I mean, let's face it, the reason Tim Hortons Field is here right now is because we partner with the Toronto Pan Am bid, and, and we benefit from getting the stadium. And, uh, and, and by the way, it's interesting, that you also mentioned about some of the uh, the cycling events that are going to be going on. Uh, the Milton Velodrome, which is what's actually sure. built for the Pan Am Games, was supposed to be here at one point, if you recall. I don't want to get into that again, but there it is. <laughs> is now uh this there's a an effective reuse of a a facility that was built for the pan am games that you're going to make use of if in fact you're the successful bidder here absolutely and and a lot of the infrastructure that was built as part of that pan am exercise and 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 uh, games uh, are going to be very important for for our bid and and it's pretty special that you know if we are fortunate enough to host the 100th anniversary that it, they will take place on literally the same grounds that the first games in 1930 took place. Obviously, those first games gave birth to to Civic Stadium, which became Ivor Wynn, which is now Tim Hortons Field, and it's uh, it's quite possible that the opening and closing ceremonies uh, could well be there. Uh, the Jimmy Thompson Memorial Pool is obviously a legacy from those first games, and 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 you know the the new sport infrastructure is certainly something that we can't ignore because the capital infusion in the community would be tremendous. Uh, you know, we would see over a dozen new or renovated sport facilities. And, and the only time that you could leverage senior levels of government funding is when you host major games like these. Uh, there's no other reason that the federal or provincial government would step up in such a major way. Uh, and so like they did with Pan Am, which gave birth to Tim Hortons Field and the Milton Velodrome, you know, we're hoping that by hosting the 2030 Games here, it will give birth to many new sports facilities across the community and refurbished facilities. I've got to ask you about about the facilities themselves, though, PJ, and it's something that I know you've heard a lot of talk about in the community over the last little while. I know Andrew Drescher wrote about this a week or two ago in his column. Uh, because on a parallel path, as, as you guys are going along with Hamilton 100 and this Commonwealth bid, uh, city Council is trying to decide what they're going to do with entertainment facilities, uh, whether they're going to build a new arena, whether they're going to renovate that one, whether they're going to, what they're going to do to the convention center, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's going to have a major impact on, on facilities for this bid at one point or another. Uh, at what point do these, these parallel paths start to intersect? Because, I mean, you, you can't do one without the other unless you're simply going to fall back and say, well, we're just going to have to work with the existing facilities. Well, we'll know, Bill, where our bid uh, stands after March 31st. So we submit phase two of the bid on March 9th, and we'll know in a few a few weeks after that if Hamilton is selected as the Canadian candidate city. And once that happens, that's when I believe we'll have to have some more advanced conversations around what this would look like from a process perspective, etc. Um, but either way, the future of the downtown entertainment and sports facilities are, are things look good, whether it's through the the separate private sector initiatives, 
uh, where, you know, where obviously there's, uh, there's a lot of interested parties, or whether it's through Commonwealth Games, there are now two very, very plausible and, 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 and strong solutions uh, before the city around what to do with these facilities. Uh, and so, so they are separate paths and, and parallel paths, as, you, as you've uh, indicated. And, and it's going to be a case of let's see how this continues to play out before we, before we move further on it. You know, it, 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 you know, we're hoping that after we submit our bid that Commonwealth Games Canada and, you know, and the Ministry, uh, Ministry of Sports uh, nationally, that they really like what we are proposing here and, and select us as the candidate city. And then once we get uh, there, that's when I think there will be more discussions with the city around the whole capital plan. You know, there were some comments yesterday made by some of the councillors around, you know, how, you know, what some of these facilities should look like and, and, you know, what degree of community consultation there should be. And so we certainly look forward to, to you know, having a wholesome engagement exercise with the city around these facilities, all the facilities, and beyond that, having a very robust community engagement exercise about the social benefits of the game. So we're looking at really engaging the community in a meaningful way uh, around the facilities, around the legacy, uh, and around this entire initiative. But you've also heard the talk in the community that uh, some of the people involved in this Hamilton 100 group uh, with this bid are also some of the people that have a stake in, in what's going to happen with the entertainment facilities, and Carmen's group is one of those. Uh, some people have expressed some concern about that. I, I'm not going to go down the road of some people suggesting there's a conflict of interest. I don't think it's that severe, but they, they feel a, a bit of a discomfort that, you know, if they move ahead on this, then maybe, you know, your company can benefit from this, and there's a, there's a concern about that. How do you address that? No, and you know what, Bill, very valid uh, comments and concerns that were brought. And I, I was listening to John Best a few weeks ago on your show, and he yeah. made a great point that uh, that uh, conflict declared is a conflict avoided. And, and, and the reality is, as it relates to those specific assets, we would put our hand up, and, 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 and we've been very transparent and open with regards to our intentions and, and with regards to, to, you know, to our interests especially seeing that right now Carmen's group is, is obviously still managing the convention center. Um, but this is where we're, you know, we're putting different hats on because they are very different. And obviously in the case of Commonwealth Games, it is so much bigger and so much more impactful potentially than just those three downtown facilities. This is, you know, this, so this is where we're looking at the city building and the grand city building initiative that could emerge out of this, uh, you know, and, and, and focusing on that and wearing that, City hat, and then taking that hat off when we're discussing and looking at the at the uh, you know the downtown uh, work and, and and project planning that we're doing. So we are being very careful and you know making sure that we're wearing the right hat at the right time. But when there is a more formal process uh, as it relates to Commonwealth or the downtown facilities, we would 100% be you know disclosing uh, any you know any. Um, issues that may be emerging as a result of that, you know, we would put our hand up and, 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 and be very transparent and open with the community as it relates to that. Now, yesterday's meeting, you mentioned off the top that uh, the report that, that, that you and Lewin and the others in the group presented uh, touched on some of the concerns that, that city staff had raised earlier about this. But even at the meeting yesterday, uh, Mike Zagarek, who's the chief financial guy, of course, for the city, uh, was still expressing some concern about ha- the city's commitment to this over the long term. And that means the capital commitment about projects and talking about sustainability. Uh, and, and I know council, in spite of that, you know, because I, I think the recommendation from 
from staff was to simply table your presentation. Uh, council decided to move forward and at least say, no, let's go to phase two on this. But that, that that's a red flag for an awful lot of people. That, are you sure we can afford this? Uh, is, is that a concern to you? Uh, it's not, Bill. And, uh, and in the sense that I think there is a far greater risk in not pursuing this initiative. There's more to gain for the community. There's more to gain from a capital perspective. And, and I believe that the big concern from staff, uh, and it was quoted in the paper, was simply they didn't, because they didn't write the report, they, you know, which obviously our Hamilton 100 team has spent thousands of hours over the course of the last, you know, many months in preparing, you know, the report, uh, because they didn't play an active role in writing it, they didn't feel qualified or, or interested in, in actually, I guess, providing a, a recommendation on the contents of our, of our report. Um, but beyond that, you know, Mike did say, and Mike Zagarek, uh, the finance director, did say uh, to council that there is no risk in, in, in providing an endorsement letter at this uh, point. Uh, you know, there will be um, potential off-ramps during the tri-party agreement negotiation, and that's where the rubber really hits the road as it relates to all of this. Um, you know, we've, you know, we've, uh, you know, shared our plan, financial plan, et cetera. And, and, and Mike Zagarek did say that, yes, if, if Commonwealth Games does come, there are capital savings that will be realized by the city. And right now, conservatively, uh, that's $40 million of potential capital savings over the course of the next 10 years. That's, that's very substantial. And I think, and Councillor Marula was very, you know, bullish on, on how could we not look at these potential capital savings and how can we not look at the affordable housing that comes out of an initiative as big as this. Uh, so council was very supportive of the broad vision that we're presenting, uh, recognizing that with every vision, there is risk. With every you know, big initiative, there are elements of risk. And this is where by having Dowling at the table, they're the experts in risk mitigation. And Lou was very, very articulate yesterday in saying that we have more to risk in not doing this than by p actually pushing forward. We, there's so much more to gain by moving this forward. And let's be, just be careful to make sure that we manage the risks that are there. Well, and to be clear on this, I don't want people to get the idea that the city staff are saying, no, don't do this. Uh, I talked to a staffer yesterday uh, who basically said the same thing that you just mentioned, that the, Mike, Mr. Zagarek's concern here was that, hey, uh, we can't endorse this because those aren't our numbers. We just need some time to, to crunch the numbers ourselves. And, and uh, that's, I guess, why he wanted to table it. But my understanding is there's plenty of time to, for the staff to do that now. Oh, 100%. And, and the, the, the ultimate reality is that, this, you know, by this being a 10-year uh, exercise, there is a lot of time to get the ducks in a row as it relates to the, you know, the financial modeling, as it relates to the, to the capital planning, the community engagement and social benefits. We have a long runway. It's not as if this is going to happen in the next you know, next couple of weeks or months, we've got a lot of time to, to really, really make sure we pursue this, uh, you know, in the right way and, and, and make sure that we satisfy all the city's needs and concerns. You know, the, a lot of the councillors brought up some very valid, uh, you know, uh, comments and, and, and comments that we want to certainly endorse and look at incorporating into our plan. So we want to be very open and collaborative. This, uh, this has been a a real grassroots made in Hamilton initiative uh, where so many different stakeholders have been at the table providing their their feedback and it's important that the city themselves the city's finance team 
capital team, venues team, uh, and sports and rec, et cetera, that they all have a voice at the table uh, because we want to use this as an as a conduit and as an opportunity to really transform Hamilton. And, and like it has in other cities, uh, Manchester, Glasgow, and now coming up in Birmingham, Commonwealth Games can change cities for in a, in a meaningful way and for the better. So, so we're hoping that that staff and and obviously council continue to be supportive of this initiative because it could change Hamilton. I know the next phase, and I know we'll talk a lot more about this in the future. PJ, thanks so much for this today. No problem. Thank you, Bill. PJ McCanny, of course, uh, from the Carmen's Group, and of course, also a member of the Hamilton One Hundred Group. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. A drop in steel prices has hurt the bottom line at Stelco. Uh, the company says the loss comes after some challenging marketing conditions. Uh, and this is significant, too. Uh, the uh, Swungo lost in fourth quarter after challenging market conditions uh, with what they call an unprecedented drop in prices. Uh, the producer said it lost about $24 million or 27 cents per diluted share for the quarter that ends on December 31st, 2019. What's going on here? Is it Stelco? Is it the industry? Well, let's uh, bring Dr. Peter Warian into the conversation, Senior Research Fellow at the Monk School of Global Affairs and uh, Public Policy at the University of Toronto. Uh, Peter, thank you for the time. Glad you could join us today. Okay, thank you. Good to talk to you again. Peter, is it time to hit the panic button here? It's our time to hit the worry button. Okay. Um, That's right beside the panic button. <laughs> yeah, but it's one step over. I mean, I think it's really about the industry. Um, not on the radar screen for most people, but... Global manufacturing has been in a recession for a year now, and um, these things always have a, a time lag, but steel is the biggest uh, material input for manufacturing. So it's, it's, in that sense, it's not a, a surprise uh, that's, um, that it's, it's gone down, and gone down fairly sharp, sharply. Um, I guess I would say, in terms of where that button goes, I think this flu uh, virus thing, in the coronavirus in China is a really big deal, uh, one for obviously human and health reasons, but also economically, about uh, making that slowdown that's already going on in manufacturing for a year, ma- making that a step down further. That, now, that's a risk. That's not a forecast, but certainly uh, well worth um, uh, worrying about. It's interesting because, well, we're getting into election mode down in the States, and we just had one here in Canada, and always we get politicians promising about infrastructure improvements. We're going to rebuild this and fix this and build this road and all this sort of stuff. You would think that that especially that part of the manufacturing sector, including steel, was going to benefit from this, but it doesn't seem to be the case. Well, it seems to be a regular um, point of humor on American network TVs. Uh, This is Infrastructure Week. It's always <laughs> promised and never delivered. That's partly the breakdown between um, Trump and the Congress. So it's always promised, but it, it never arrives. Uh, it's, there's good reasons for it. Would it help steel? Absolutely. Would it help the economy? Yes. But uh, So you've got a breakdown politically uh, on the infrastructure thing, and you've got a great uh, breakdown politically between China and um, uh, the USA over trade, and that's uh, the trade disputes uh, thing um, uh, has has had its biggest impact on manufacturing because that's mostly what we ship. Uh, that's an interesting sidebar issue to this. It's maybe becoming more of a sidebar issue, more than a sidebar issue, uh, is the China-U.S. relationship. I mean, there, there are tariffs involved in this. There's a, a trade war that's gone on in this. How does that impact the, the, the global industry? Well, it is. Uh, 
impacts the global industry. First of all, a slowdown in, in most of the really run-up that we saw in uh, the last 10 years in steel. It you know, goes through cycles. Sure. But the big run-up has been uh, China. Growth is tremendous steel industry. Half of all the steel in the world is, is uh, made in China. And that affects iron ore prices uh, dramatically in places like Australia. So if iron ore prices at the peak had gone up five or six times between uh, 2002 and 2008 in there. So that was the biggest driver of uh, the price movement upwards in, in steel, in addition to the usual business cycle. And uh, if that's slackening on, so Australia is in the panic right now because of the collapse of demand from China. Australia it became an adjunct of the Chinese economy, and that biggest portion of that is uh, iron ore and uh, uh, coal. So that's underneath it. I think more broadly, to take the question up a knock that your um, your listeners need to think about is, just everybody thinks about this in their own way, but does manufacturing really matter? I think it really does. I think there's a lot of folks in Hamilton that does. Sure. Probably most people in uh, in Canada do not. Uh, well, that's going to be putting to a, a practical test if a downtown downturn in manufacturing uh, leads us to a bigger uh, a bigger downer across the economy, and a lot of that doesn't come from academic you know equations. That comes from why do they not think uh, manufacturing is important? I think it is. That's why I think the risk is there. We talked about the Chinese influence on a second. I just want to get back to that in a second, and we'll talk about the influence that's having here in Canada. Uh, steel dumping was a, a charge that uh, a lot of people, including the United States and Canada for that matter, were concerned about with the Chinese. Uh, given the fact that manufacturing has slowed down and China is the biggest steel producer right now, uh, they're going to look for a place to get rid of their product, aren't they? Yeah, but they're they're quite smart about this. I mean, um, all the noise you hear is about uh, Chinese imports into North America, mm-hmm. into the United States. And that is a problem. But uh, the Chinese ship their flat-rolled steel into um, uh, Korea, and then Korea ships it here. Uh, They send their uh, cold-rolled steel into Vietnam, and um, uh, Vietnamese send it here, and that sort of thing. So when you look at these trade cases that are up there, the elephant in the room is China, but most of these things are not China directly. They are Turkey, which takes Chinese steel. They're Korea, takes Chinese steel, like these pipelines, and in, uh, in Vietnam. So the elephant in the room is, yes, for all the noise about the trade cases, China is uh, is uh, not uh, strongly represented in the docket. There's always individual cases. Mm-hmm. But the big surge in the steel has been the indirect shipments from China, and they've been trying to get at that issue through the revised uh, NAFTA. And what about protectionism, which is another thing, a flag that Donald Trump has uh, run up the flagpole more than once. And I know that was in place for quite a long time, uh, and it's had an impact on the steel industry. Is that at play here, too? Well, um, theoretically, uh, the, uh, the, you know, if we get the final passage of, of the uh, Canada-Mexico-U.S. Uh, you know, revised NAFTA 2.0, uh, that should give us reasonable protection on that. But under Donald Trump, you just see America going nationalist across the board and protectionist across the board, and that's certainly trouble for the future. 
Yeah, and the Buy American policy, etc. I, I know that back in the day, not that anybody wants to see the U.S. steel scenario come back here again, but I mean, we kind of did an end run around that back in those days because you know it was essentially an American company. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about the product itself. One of the criticisms, Peter, that has always been leveled at Stelco over the years was, uh, look, at you're stuck in the 20th century. You're not making 21st century products. Uh, where other steel makers were, were starting to, to get into different products like that. Has, have, have they pivoted here yet? Yeah, they have pivoted. And, uh, you know, the biggest, um, the biggest uh, consumer of steel is the auto industry. And these new high-tech steels, um, to use the, um, the technical term, engineers call it microstructural. We used to take a bar of uh, slab of steel and just change its dimensions. And that was it. You know, uh, ingot came out, you flattened a, a sheet, and off it went. Now, uh, the, the, the alloys, these uh, very deep structures matter because in the leading edges of automotive, you see the merging of, uh, of, uh, of design and manufacturing. And they need these very sophisticated materials to do that, particularly under the new group at Stelco. They're trying to make that pivot. Well, that's that's heartening news, obviously, because you want to make sure that you're going to be competitive. So they seem to be in the ball game that way, right? But but the steels are probably ahead of their customers. It says that most of what you get in the car these days, like eighty percent, is not made by the auto companies; it's made in the, the supply chain, parts producers. Mm-hmm. And if you look out at the leading edge research stuff at Canmet in Hamilton, um, they are doing the technical laboratory stuff behind behind these new high fangled high falutin steels. But only about 10% of the supply chain is ready for that stuff. So, if, uh, so, in fact, the product of the steel is running ahead of their customers. And uh, through universities, uh, government research, we have to bring up the supply chain to be ready to do this new stuff. Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, that camera that you referred to right across the road from us here at the radio yeah. station and uh, the, right beside the Mon- McMaster Automotive yep. Research Center, there's some incre- incredible things going on there, just eye-opening. Uh, that people should be aware of. What about the future, though? I mean, is this a downturn? Is this a blip? Or is this is this a, a, a foreshadowing of what the industry is going to have to deal with? Well, there's two things. Number one, short term, there's going to be, you know, just a, the business cycle. In a market economy, there are ups and downs to take. We've got a plain vanilla sort of recession ahead of us. And we've seen that before, gone through it. The question there is, is the uh, policies, trade and, you know, banks and protectionism, is that going to make what would be a normal thing we've gone through make it something with a capital R recession? But secondly, longer term, the irony is this. If you take all the stuff in the news, like uh, Greta Thunberg and the low-carbon economy, the low-carbon economy needs more metals than the traditional economy. <laughs> People haven't got their heads around that yet, but it's actually, <laughs> this is a narrow sense, this is good for steel. How so? Because the kind of materials, you have to build out this infrastructure. Yeah. You have to, if you're doing recycling, it's very steel intensive. If you actually want to get your down and dirty on the recycling stuff. So the irony is um, uh, the Greta Thunberg economy is, um, uh, is more metals intensive than the traditional carbon economy. So that's worth a, a coffee down at uh, Tim Horton. <laughs> Is is the industry prepared for that? Uh, I mean, obviously, they're as you say, th- they need to be one step ahead of everybody. They're thinking it's they, they're thinking it's through, uh, but you have to invest in the years before it happens. I guess a chicken yeah. and egg, right? And with the kind of uncertainty, I think I think the new Stelco Group is trying to do all the right things, but it's with this kind of uncertainty, it's really tough. 
to uh, find the money and take the risk to, to take that list. The ones who do, there'll be an extra premium for them. The uh, ones who don't will be lagging. What about government intervention? I'll go back to the you know that terrible recession we had around two oh eight oh nine. Uh, it took government intervention both in Canada and the United States uh, to give the, uh, the uh, first of all the auto industry a big hand up, but it, certainly the steel industry was trying to benefit from that as well. Uh, and they will look to government in situations like this. But the, as you've mentioned. Uh, I'm not so sure that anywhere outside of Ontario they really care much about the uh, manufacturing or advanced manufacturing. It's a key part of the Ontario economy, certainly, but uh, you know, in, in Alberta, Saskatchewan, and uh, Manitoba, not so much. Right, but um, they certainly need the infrastructure stuff. Dare I say, pipelines? Yeah. Uh, so if they ever get them built, got, everybody's got some stake in this game. So, so it would behoove the federal government to keep an eye on what's happening with this industry, then. Sure, and and this whole business of uh, we've got dangling out there what's the proposed 147 billion dollar bill uh, to get our infrastructure right. We need to get on with it. That'll help every, everybody, not only the steel industry. Uh, interesting times, a, a concerning story, obviously, and uh, you know, given the fact that I, I know that Stelco and, and ArcelorMittal DeFasco are not this, the giants that they were uh, 30, 40 years ago, but they still play a key part here in the Hamilton economy, especially. Uh, so we always uh, get our, our interest up as soon as we hear a story like this. So, right, uh, but we also have to add to that this counterintuitive, steel has a bigger role going forward in the low-carbon economy. Uh, and that's heartening news, too. Uh, Peter, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Dr. Peter Warrior, of course, from uh, University of Toronto, uh, the Monk School of Global Affairs and uh, Public Policy. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Yesterday, we talked with Cameron Croce uh, about uh, a city council decision uh, that was at that time imminent. It was confirmed yesterday, by the way, uh, that uh, the city now has given a faith-based think tank uh, uh, Cardis, uh, the go-ahead uh, for a lease of uh, Balfour House, which is a historic building up on the West Mountain, uh, raising an awful lot of concern about the organization itself, not so much about the business deal. And quite a few people in the community have uh, raised some concerns about that over the uh, the last couple of weeks, and uh, we're very disappointed, I think, in City Council's decision on this. Uh, one of those, uh, who is the co-author, by the way, of an op-ed piece that uh, appeared in the paper over the weekend, uh, Graham Crawford, of course, with history and heritage and uh, an active resident and things that matter to this city. Uh, good to see you again. Thanks for coming in today. Have we got the mic on? Yeah. We good? Okay. Is he good now? Thanks, Bill. Okay. Yeah. Just yeah. moving a little closer okay, there. I'm sorry. Make sure I hit the right button here when we do these sorts of things. Uh, obvious question. I think pretty much know the answer. Were you surprised by the council decision yesterday? Uh, not not surprised that it uh, that they gave approval to take the next step. I I have to be honest. I was disappointed in th- there were only two votes uh, that were opposed, and and that was Councillor Maureen Wilson of Ward One and uh, Ward Three Councillor Narinder Non. I would have hoped there might have been at least a couple more, uh, but there weren't. Uh, that's too bad. Uh, it just it it makes you so disappointed in how your council makes decisions. Uh, this is a complex decision. I acknowledge that because it can't just be about are they just going to fix up the house. It's also the moral side, the social side, the equity, diversity, and inclusion side, and that's that makes it more complex. But hey, that's what they signed up for. They're they're elected leaders. They need to lead. They need to listen. 
<laughs> well, you got that right, because they didn't even do that. There's a ton of, of effort that went into informing people about CARDIS and what they post on their website and what they believe in. And yet none of that was paid attention to. I got in touch with the city manager, Jeanette Smith, and said, what are we doing about uh, the equity, diversity, and inclusion component here? Is it that that lens, ha this deal has to pass through that lens. And she said that unfortunately, uh, staff weren't ready uh, with the report. And Bill, I do want, I, I, so I went online, I thought, how long ago did they approve this EDI protocol? To, it's almost literally to the day, one year ago. And yet we still don't have anything in on paper, in writing, that staff can use to, to help educate council on the implications of, of CARDIS and their, their views on people and things, uh, people like me who are members of the queer community. Um, they're not very friendly uh, to people like me. Well, I, I read some of the quotes uh, from their magazine, uh, which you guys included in the op-ed piece, yeah, which, by the way, I, I mentioned it was in the Spectator. It's in, been in a number of different newspapers. Uh, Peter Burleson and Catherine's others have picked it up as yeah. well. This is not just a Hamilton issue, but certainly it, it's relevant to this community. It is relevant to this community because the deal is between our city uh, and Cardis, even though it is important to note that the Ontario Heritage Trust owns the building. And Bill, I've read the Ontario Heritage Trust commentary on the Cardis proposal, and I, I, if I'm charitable, I'd say it's less than enthusiastic. So there's a whole heritage side to this mm -hmm. that the Heritage Trust is quite concerned about, but but uh, our councillors don't seem to care about that. Fred Eisenberger asked uh, Cardis if they adhere to all of the uh, the you know laws related to uh, hiring and employment and so on. And of course, no one is claiming that Cardis is doing anything illegal. We are claiming, though, that Cardis is doing stuff that is socially reprehensible. Uh, there's a big difference, and that's why the decision is a complex one. But if Fred Eisenberger thinks, well, you know, they're not, they're, they're, they don't have any slave labor, uh, and they don't break any laws, therefore it's okay. Well, then why do we have an EDI protocol? What was the purpose of the EDI Equity, Diversity, Inclusion Protocol? Do you want me to answer that? Yeah. I'll, I'll answer it for you right now because I talked about this a year ago when they instituted this. That was a knee-jerk reaction to the problems that happened in Gage Park, and they thought we better do something because we're, we're being accused of doing nothing. So they passed that protocol uh, to say, see, see, we do believe you. We are empathetic to what you're doing, but they haven't done a damn thing about it since then. Well, ju it's just like the climate emergency. Yeah. It's all It's all, it's all words. It's, it's words. all theater. Yeah. Uh, what they don't seem to understand are the implications on decision-making if you're serious about something. So if you claim something, then it actually has an impact on how you think, how you evaluate, how you read a report, and including the, the, the nature of the report because staff should have put in a, a written report about EDI and CARDIS, and they did not. And if I, I'll be direct, Bill, Jeanette Smith has let us down. She can't blame staff for this. She's been around long enough. She could have stepped up and said, I want that report. We must have it. Because effectively what happened yesterday, Bill, was they, they made half a decision. They made half a decision based on heritage and money. The other half is the social side, is the equity, diversity, and inclusion side. And it wasn't discussed. There was no report. Uh, it, that's just not appropriate. The let's, let's, let's put this in context, though. I mean, Graham... This is a city and a city council that uh, had 
a, a right wing extremist working in their IT department for how many years? For years. Yeah. And they knew it. Yeah. And and did nothing. Nothing. Uh, even after they passed this protocol. Correct. And eventually, of course, uh, the city manager looked into it just after she well, was hired. Well, due to public pressure, I might yeah. add. Not pressure from council. No. So, you know, you got to wonder. I mean, they certainly talk the talk when it comes to things like this, but do they follow through on it? And I, I think I think you've got a legitimate concern and a legitimate question here. And I think people within that community, and I've talked to a number of you. you we've done panel discussions on this show, Graham. You've been part of those. Uh, after what happened at, uh, with Pride Week and with the, the raising of the flag and, and, of course, the Gage Park incident uh, yet again. Uh, and, and council seems to be dragging their heels on this. Well, they are. And unless, unless people think this is just the, the usual queer suspects making a lot of noise. Look, if you're a member of a trade union, Cardis doesn't like you. Cardis, if you're an environmentalist, Cardis doesn't believe climate change is happening. There's, I mean, this is on their website, by the way. I'm not making this up. Um, if you believe in public education, Cardis doesn't. They believe in private schools. They're, they were on CBC, Na uh, The Current, and National Airwaves, just this week, talking about, quote, independent schools, which, which is translation is private schools. You could say, well, that's not against the law. No, it's not. But should our city government, remember, everybody who's listened to this show, Bill, plays, pays a tax to our school board, whether you like it or not, whether you got kids or not. And, and yet Cardis is promoting setting up private schools, taking kids out of our public system. Do you think that's a good thing, City Council and Mayor Eisenberger? Yeah, I don't. I think the, I think the provincial government's on side with that, too. Well, sadly, I think that's one I think of the reasons for right. the teachers' dispute. But we digress. Here, here's the point. Uh, and I understand it because one of the counter arguments for this, and we've discussed this many times on the show, is look at, you know, they've got the right to their opinion. Uh, they're a group, and, you yes. know, as long as they're not beating people over the head with it, that's fine. And they have a presence here. I mean, they do already have a presence here in Hamilton. They simply say, well, we want. This is their headquarters yeah. in Hamilton. Yeah. Yeah. So, this is, so what's the big deal? I mean, that's. that's, right. that's a, so what? Yeah. Uh, what if they were in Brampton? Would it make any difference? No. It's what they say that is is at issue, not where they're located, not the fact that they're a faith-based group. That isn't the issue. Um, but it's but it, the key issue is they want to form a partnership with the city of Hamilton. We have to have principles and standards, and we're supposed to have them. And yes, it's difficult because people start throwing up, oh, what about the Catholic Church? Uh, I was asked by Larry Deany the other day, what about the Catholic Church? I said, well, what about it, Larry? If you can point to, to the Catholic Church's website, and if it's filled with what I think, what I view as uh, hateful content, or if your priest is standing up in your church spouting hateful comments of, of a Sunday sermon, then let me know about it. But I said, is he? And Larry said, no. I said, but that's the problem. We have evidence here. These aren't feelings. This is evidence-based. All you have to do is go on their website. Uh, mayor Eisenberger asked, and I'm more, more, less and less am I inclined to call him Mayor Eisenberger, i got to tell you, Bill, because I continue to be disappointed. In well, it's, it's the title. He's got the job, so let's, let's yeah, okay. leave it at that. All right, all right. Uh, but uh, yesterday, ask Cardis, ask Michael Van Pelt, you know, do you adhere to the employment laws of the country? And Pelt said, yeah, and we also adhere to uh, the uh, diversity, uh, sorry, equity, diversity, and inclusion principles. So I went on their website, and they have pictures of every team member, literally their entire staff, 
And let me tell you something, Bill. That, and I posted this today on social media. All the faces are white. There is no diversity, like not even close. Uh, there's literally no person who works for Cardis who is anything other than white. They're allowed to do that. I'm not saying they're not allowed to it. But when they want to form a partnership with our civic government, our people, all of us who put money into this $2 billion a year operation, then I say, well, wait a minute. We have standards and principles. We are a multicultural uh, city. Uh, we are a racialized community. Uh, and we need to represent all people when we make decisions and cut deals with people. And so Cardis can do whatever they want, but they can't do it with us without scrutiny, in my opinion. I want to ask you a question here. And I'm going to use a historical reference from about eight or ten years ago, I guess. And you'll remember this because it was a very contentious issue that we talked about on this program. Uh, there was a, there's an agency here in town, a couple of them actually, uh, that run uh, residences for, for troubled youth, you know, that are trying to get back on their feet and, and give them a second chance, etc. It's been a very successful program. I remember they wanted to expand, and they're trying to buy a property over by Shamrock Park. Over yep, at, okay, I do remember it. Uh, and the ward councillor and the majority of councillors, because back in those days, you know, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours, which I still think goes on there, simply said, well, I'm getting a lot of flack from the neighbors, so I want you to oppose this. And I said, why? Well, why? we feel threatened. I said, show me exactly why you threaten. But they said, well, is, if, our if our residents say they feel threatened, we have to respond to that and we have to. I said, okay, fine. I think it's a frivolous argument. And eventually, by the way, they lost at the Ontario Municipal Board said it was frivolous and, and that the place is there now and it's doing Indeed. just fine. But yeah. why don't they take that mindset? Why didn't council take that mindset? I've heard from you. I've heard from Cameron Crush. I've heard from a number of people in the LGBTQ community that said we feel threatened uh, because of the of the message that this group is advocating. Oh, Bill. Yeah, why didn't – and uh, oh, it's bad enough that city staff did not include – that filter and did not talk about those aspects. But why did nobody, nobody around that table yesterday talk about it? That, you know what, we've got some concerned residents here and that needs to be addressed. No, indeed, and it isn't, you know, there's obviously the uh, the black, indigenous, people of color communities have also been in touch with council, have spoken up, the queer community has as well, but also lots of allies have. Uh, there was a, paper, a letter in the paper today, the Spectator today, uh, about this. Uh, there's a lot of people who don't agree with this approach. And so that your question is why? Why did it happen? Well, I think it, uh, I think in part it's because our council does not use evidence-based decision-making. They certainly don't even know how to put on and look through the EDI lens. Clearly, they're incapable of that. And also, I think there's, a, there's maybe a, a little, they're a little tight, a little too tight, a little too close with some of the proponents on these sorts of things. And that worries me. They also don't take the time to do their homework. They don't go online. They don't look at websites. Even though we're pointing things out, we're giving them excerpts. It still makes no difference to them because they don't want it to make a difference to them. But I'm telling you this, it makes a difference to us. The people who have, Bill, I've been an out gay man for 40 years. I've been dealing with oppression for 40 years. Uh, and there are people still living with it and dealing with it in this city today, as we know. The hate capital of Canada, the yellow vesters, the pride violence, the police. Um, it's time our council, our elected leaders, paid attention and stopped looking at just a couple of bucks to fix the Balfour House. And wait a minute, by the way, I, based on that OHT, the Ontario Heritage Trust report, 
uh, there's 40 miles of bad road ahead of, for Cardis on this. This is not going to be a slam dunk from a, a restoration perspective. This is not a renovation. This is a restoration of a protected property, a historic site. It's very different. The architects that Cardis has hired have no experience, and the trust points this out in the report, with heritage restoration. They've done renovations. You can't renovate Balfour House. It's not allowed. You have to restore it. And that is expensive. And let me tell you, Bill, from a guy who worked on the Westdale, which had to be a restoration, yeah. it's expensive. Well, yeah, and I remember having discussions with Joe Mancinelli from Leuna with the Lister Block and Absolutely. a number of other things. Yes. It's, it's, a, it's a whole different ballgame yeah. to have to do that sort of thing. But one of the other elements, too, and again, I'll go back to the city's response and the city's handling of this issue, uh, and I'm getting mixed messages, uh, you know, because the the story we saw, and I believe one of the reports I read, uh, talked about this as a sole source, sole source project. It is. All right. Yet I heard one counselor yesterday say, well, nobody else was out there. We, we put this out there. I don't remember that happening. Now, unless uh, I missed that. But the city policy says that you can't sole source. You're not supposed to. There's supposed to be a competition. See who's out there and get the best possible deal for the city. Did they do that? Well, they, they did not do it, and I know for a fact that Cobalt Connects, which is a local uh, cultural planning and development group, have lots of success. They're great track record. They, they want in. City said no. Judy Partridge goes on about we can't sole source stuff, except she voted for this. She also voted to sole source the, the water down bypass. It's all votes of convenience, Bill, every time. We need to wake up here. And, I, Bill, it is time for change. I mean, if we lose this and Balfour House gets turned over to Cardis, I guess we chalk that up as a loss. But the win I see going forward is in 2022 and we need a bunch of those people to go home and stay there and thankfully sam marula has already declared that's his what his plan is but i'd like him to go home now basically the way he's behaving right now this petulant child that says i'm retiring you can't touch me I said well then get out of the way now there's a uh, there's the, here's the thing though you know they've, they've passed this and they're gonna come back and they're gonna say look we already passed that protocol that was a year ago and and i know the city manager you know made reference to that when she had the conversation with you but if that's going to be the policy then stick to the policy correct uh, there's a policy that says don't sole source any projects like this and they say yeah we adhere to that policy except when we don't except i mean don't. Where, where's exactly. the consistency right so the inconsistency is appalling uh and they're bold about it uh, they don't seem to care that people like us are calling them on it. It's like, because it will, I guess, will go away. I'm not sure. But I do hold our council to a higher standard. It's pretty tough to do that with when you look at some of the players. But look, you got to give credit to Councillor Maureen Wilson and Councillor Narinderon who did try. They did speak. They did their homework. Clearly, they'd read all the documentation. Clearly, they understand the implications of equity, diversity, and inclusion, and they spoke to those things. Sadly, it all fell on deaf ears, including our so-called mayor, who supports Cardis and always did and is not going to change his mind no matter what evidence we put in front of him. Well, that, that's one of the reasons why I wasn't totally surprised by the decision yesterday, because when these uh, the same organization was making a run at Akmar, uh, they were getting pretty good council support at that time. They were getting huge council yeah. support, I remember, because I opposed that. And, too, and the these same, same issues were raised then. Yes, yeah, same reasons. This is not a new issue. So we, we've raised these issues before. We've given the evidence. We've added new evidence. And yet no one is paying attention, save for two councillors. 
And as much as I was pleased that Jeanette Smith, our city manager, did respond to my email, I was not uh, impressed with the response. It was basically, gee, sorry, we don't have, we ran out of time and staff can't do it. I really wanted them to, but they can't. It's like, really? A year? Uh, come on, it's not like this is a 10-person operation. And this is kind of important in this city, particularly right now when we're suffering. When there is a group of people, however large or however small in this community, that have some concerns about this and 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 feel as one person had told me it feels unsafe not yes, for physical do. not for physical violence but just you know because of the mindset and 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 the message that that a group stands for i, I think council has a responsibility to address it I, i'm not saying drop everything and say okay we're going to change everything but there has to be some dialogue uh and i don't hear that well in fact bill i mean you know there are a number of councillors who have been completely silent on the issue of hate in the city of oppression of fear. Well, not even worse, there were some that deny it. Absolutely. And they say, you know, I don't want to be called uh, the number one city in Canada for hate. And my response to them is, well, how would you feel better if we were number five? What difference does it make? The issue is hate. The issue isn't ranking. We have a problem in this city. And people like Tom Jackson need to smarten up, do his homework, get out there and talk to people and understand what it feels like every day for some people who have to suffer through this, and yet he's not doing any of that. He's just saying, I will not stand for being called the number one hate city in Canada. Really, Tom, what are you doing about it? Yeah, well, that's the question. Uh, We're just about out of time this time anyway, but uh, surely this is a discussion that's going to continue. Graham, thanks for coming in today. Bill, I thank you for letting me on. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.